and welcome back to the Fun Time Program. I am your host, John Andrew Fredrickson, here with my beautiful co-host, Vivica Vol. And today we have an exciting episode for you guys. We have been talking a lot about universal basic income in the background here as this pandemic has been playing out. Uh, Andrew Yang had an awesome campaign for president last year in the uh, Democratic primary where, where he brought these ideas to the forefront. And we've actually had this little kind of play run almost with the pandemic where tons of people are unemployed, tons of people are out of work, have no opportunities to go to work because of the pandemic. And we've been testing out this stimulus, this government stimulus. And all of a sudden, UBI is starting to sound like a really good idea to a lot of people. So we have an exciting guest today. His name is Seth. He is the host of the Dividend Report on YouTube, and we have him here with us live on Zoom right now. Seth, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing so well. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm loving the math hat. <laughs> I, I have to wear this as just a rule of thumb. It's it's important that you rep make America think harder every single day, especially considering the times that we live in. So I'm always wearing this. I love That's that. Awesome. I love that. What is the story behind the math hat? So you know, it, we ran into a little bit of an issue during the campaign. I say we. I, I've never been officially involved in Yang's campaign. I just do the, the YouTube channel where I talk about my own interests, where there was a pretty big dialogue happening about how far Andrew Yang's kind of jokes about his Asian-ness went. And one of the things is that, uh, well, we just put math on the hat. Isn't that funny? The Asian guy who loves math, but it actually stands for something as a counterbalance to the Make America uh, Great Again slogan. Like mm -hmm. here, we want to have a stark contrast. So there were two, you know, there were two sides in that discussion of exactly like, is this a good slogan or is it a not? I think a lot of people kind of wound up on the idea that math is just cool cool it's a cool thing to wear on your head it is i love that i yeah. love that and it's so recognizable now whenever you see somebody with a math, math hat like this you know immediately what it's about you know what they represent and you know that you can have an interesting conversation with them about policy i mean or they just really like numbers could be could be either <laughs> one yeah especially here growing up in the south uh if i see someone with a, a math hat i immediately know that's someone who i want to kind of gravitate towards you know maybe up in new york exactly. you can run into these hats a little bit more often but these are rare where I come from. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been seeing them around New York and also, you know, seeing the, the Yang campaign uh, banners uh, all over Brooklyn. There's definitely been a lot of positive response to his message here in New York. It's definitely resonated, especially in the creative community, which is where, where, where we come from. And, you know, creatives are always struggling with the idea of how do you pursue your art and how do you make a living economically and how do you blend them as much as possible. But anybody who can come along and talk about new ways to do this from a, a systemic perspective is always going to be excited for artists and creatives. So we're really excited to take a really deep dive into UBI today and kind of expose our audience to this concept because we haven't really talked about it on the channel yet. But before we do that, we'd love to hear more about who you are and, and you know, what, what has your life experience been that led you to becoming, you know, a part of, of the Yang Gang and, and, and an advocate for universal basic income? Yeah, I don't think that it would surprise many people who exist in the UBI space when I say that I, I do think that being a universal basic income advocate has become a huge part of who I like, how I identify myself. And it seems a little weird. And in your introduction, kind of mentioning that you've kind of briefly brisk on the subject of a universal basic income seems surprising to me just because of how radical of an idea that it is. You can't kind of just drop Oh, UBI into a conversation and not expound on it is at least what I've found myself. Some people can get a little bit uh, 
like I, I found this with a lot of people who have come to this idea, like Scott Santens, who has been a huge inspiration to me overall, is, is once you really kind of sit and, and think about the issue of a universal basic income, it, it really consumes your entire process of looking at the world in general. And when you realize that, hey, you know what, I, I think this can work. I think that there's good reason to believe it does. There's data to, to run off of. And, and as much as I think about it, the more and more I think about it, this is just something that needs to happen. There, there becomes a part of you inside that wants to fight for this, that wants to talk about this, that wants to share and and not not like brainwash people or like try and persuade people, but it's a conversation that opens doors into the insight of other people. And it gets down into the root of some core concepts that people are very interested about, such as, uh, you know, work, fulfillment, the meaning of value, the meritocracy, uh, scarcity and abundance. And all of these things are, are stuff that informs our conversation in day-to-day -day life. And, and you realize we don't actually give that deep of a look into them as we should. So uh, my lived experiences, uh, it, I, I can't imagine how it could be more different than, than y'all's lip, you know, in New York and everything. I really do think that people's journey to where they find UBI is something that's interesting. And everyone probably has an interesting story to tell. And it's something that I encourage people to do uh, because it's the human stories that are going to make change happen. And that's something to remember and something to keep a hold of. I grew up here in the conservative South. I was reading Atlas Shrugged in high school. Like if I can just give you I, an I, image. I, <laughs> Atlas Shrugged was very influential on my my high school years as well. Yeah. And and it gets a lot of kind of slack thrown at it because of, you know, just how it's been politicized. But at the end of the day, Atlas Shrugged is a book about a utopia. It's like if a certain set <laughs> ways of rules happen, you can see why it would be appealing to a certain group of people. But Unfortunately, utopias do not exist. And the real world, when you get into it and you start looking at things, you kind of realize, okay, well, things are a little bit different. I'll put that off to the side. But a very deep ingrained belief in the meritocracy. Uh, I was very like socialism's the, the worst thing in the world. Wealth redistribution. What are you talking about? People mm -hmm. earn and you work. earn and, it, yeah. Exactly. And this is a deeply American idea, not just conservative idea. And as yeah. I've found, there are many on the left as well that do hold uh, a deep view of work. And, and like, it's just, it's being distributed wrong, but at the end of the day, it's still work that informs everything. So before I was a universal basic income advocate, I was, uh, I guess, as like a side hobby, really interested in virtual reality. I had made a podcast mm. about it super, super into it. You know, this is 10 years ago, early 2010, some guy by the name of Palmer Lucky creates this headset in his parents' basement. And you put it on and all of a sudden you're transported into a brand new world. And it's the an earth shattering experience the first time you have it happen. You can see videos of people in malls trying it and freaking out and falling on the ground and everything, which by the way, if you haven't tried this yet, don't do that. Don't, don't get one of these phones into a cardboard box. That's not how you're supposed to experience it. You need headphones, binaural audio. Uh, right. It's all about the senses. I could go on for this forever. Don't let me get onto this <laughs> tangent. I, I've, I've had the, the good fortune of testing out uh, one of their um, VR systems at the YouTube space here in New York. 
they have a really awesome space for creators. Once you get to a certain level on YouTube, you get free access. You can come in and you know use all their podcasting stuff, their virtual reality stuff. So definitely when you hit 10,000 subscribers, make sure you come and check that out in New York and come visit us as well. <laughs> I had no idea. And I accept yeah. that invitation. Like Absolutely. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> There's also uh, virtual reality bars up here. Yes. Well, well, that was before the world broke. Yes. Um, before the world broke, there's like a couple different uh, VR bars where you could go in and like play a bunch of different like VR games and stuff. Yeah, we'll definitely have to do a VR tour when you come visit. <laughs> the before times. Yeah, that's amazing. Yep. <laughs> that's really cool. I, I mean, a place opened up around here, which is, you know, your, your average arcade kind of place. And everyone from, you know, miles and miles outside of the city come in to try virtual reality in this arcade yeah. uh so it's so cool to see and hear about the city also experiencing its own adoption to some way i'll admit the adoption's been slower than i would have liked yeah yes. i honestly uh i know they said in 2016 it was the year of vr and i was like okay well this is going to be like the new big thing and then nobody really started doing it i guess it was like kind of cost prohibitive and like some it's, people get really motion sick in there it's too. not quite there yet I, I try to remind myself when you look at the the way that technology grows and you're an early adopter it always feels like it's here right it's ready to take <laughs> over but then we look at the iphone the iphone came out in 2007 and even though i was an early adopter and i had it right from the beginning it wasn't really until like 2014 or 15 that i found that i was doing everything on the iphone that it b became a mature enough platform it takes that eight to ten years once awesome. the early adopters think it's ready to the time when it you know can be really kind of integrated into society in a better way that's gonna happen this decade there's no avoiding it vr this is the decade of VR and AR, our oh. augmented reality. But anyway, let's let's get back to your <laughs> your your life story. <laughs> yeah, and, and some people may wonder, like, okay, how does this tie into a UBI? This is the thing. Right. A UBI ties into everything. Um yeah. and and yeah, I think adoption, not everyone can afford a a rig and the total and the cost, it comes out to like $2,000. The cost does have to come down over time. And then at the end of the day too, it, it needs to open up and become more social. You know, whenever we have a gathering, a party or something here, uh, I'm always the person who is over in my room leading people in and out through the door as they're partying and they're trying VR. I'm putting them in it. I'm showing them how to use it. I'm guiding them through the experience, but it's very solo almost. Like other people can't very uh, engage with it very well and it's almost like it's going to be better once if anything it should have been adopted now but of course we never prepared for a situation in which everyone is going to have to stay home you know this is the thing i was right. talking 10 years ago on my vr podcast saying think of the implications of what vr can do virtual workspaces can allow you to not only work more efficiently i think but completely replace <laughs> the for a large segment of work in general, replace the need to show up and be present at an office. I was saying right. uh, telework is going to be the future. I was saying that in like yeah. 2012, 2013, and look where we are right. now. Because uh, <laughs> that's huge, right? Uh, all that real estate, all those costs, it makes financial sense for businesses to just allow their workers to work from home. And, you know, the technology is growing and adopting. And the next big thing is going to be when they can track your eyes. They've got cameras inside of the headset. Yeah which will be able to measure where you're looking because a lot of communication is the micro uh, facial expressions that we make with one another. Yes. Uh, and just looking at an avatar in virtual reality, it's cool. It's novel at first, but there's still more to come. And yes. yeah, it still sits in that uncanny Valley situation. Right. 
<laughs> yeah, but but even even with its faults, you know, I interviewed a woman who was uh, super super Christian, like anti technology. Never let her kids have a laptop, a cell phone, video game consoles, or anything. She she uh, was very so much she's pretty much Amish. Oh, I like that's what I thought, like, right? Uh, like a step above, like more basically uh, how I was raised. Mennonite. I grew up with no technology, no movies, nothing. <laughs> yeah, except you weren't raised Christian. Like, I was raised Christian, but not like not like that. No. I was raised more conservative than you were. Yes, yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it, it was you know a little bit of the Christian kind of aspect came into it. You know, like uh, video games are uh, evil. They're you know idle hands knit sweaters for the yes. devil type thing. And, yeah. and I, I'm going to talk about that <laughs> quite a bit, but, you know, she came down with some pretty significant illness at some point in her life. Her kids have largely left the house. One of her sons stationed over in the Middle East and everything. And he had bought his brother a Xbox or something after they moved out of the house. And then they kind of came together and said, let's build her a PC and let's get her this Oculus headset because she's just, she can't move around that much. The illness had kept her kind of stationary. And somehow, I guess, you know, they, they talked her into it and everything and it changed her life. Like she went from being stationary all day in a bed to sitting in a chair that could swivel. And she started playing, uh, Oh man, what is it? It's like zero gravity ultimate frisbee, essentially. Oh, nice. So wow. the yeah, the mo the movement in that is that you can like put your hand on a wall and propel yourself forward. And and movement's tricky because it breaks the immersion if you can't actually walk around. But in here in this space, even someone without legs can uh or without the utility of their legs could really get into it. She lost 60 pounds uh, in a, wow. in, yeah, like in half of a year, she joined. So this is active. She's, she's actually she's like active, moving yeah. around. Yeah. Wow. She's mostly like waving her arms and catching the Frisbee and she's, she got really good at it. She joined an esports team and traveled to California to participate in a tournament. Like, wow. Yeah. This technology shifted Traveling her. Traveling to be in an esports team. That is such a it. delightful change of pace. It improved her life. It improved her health. She said she, every time that she had the headset on, she would go longer and longer longer without, you know, having to take her pain medication. Uh, and this is something that they're doing for children is, uh, you know, they have to get a shot and they'll put the headset on and like this virtual avatar comes up and says, all right, I'm going to put this red gym into your power armor and it's going to feel very warm, but this will make you stronger. And so they wait and they looking at a screen and then they put the needle in right when the gym goes in and the kid loves it. Like they completely forget that there's a needle going into their arm because they're so wow. engaged. Awesome. Right. Wow. It's a game. Yeah. 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 So, so this is where I was 10 years ago. I was so bullish on this technology. I still am. It's got its obstacles, <laughs> but it's around the corner and it's something to look forward to. And, and so I'm involved in all of the community discussions. And what I started to realize is people were saying, Hey, this is a little clunky now, but give it 10, 15 years. And the rate of technological expansion is going to completely blow this out of the water. And then they pointed me back to Moore's law. And I started learning, I started addressing technology from that angle, from that interest, from this kind of video game centric view of the world. And I really expanded into, wow, like this is actually incredible. Like I was graduating high school around that time. So I didn't really 
take into consideration just how dramatic a change technology was having on our world. Uh, you know, the year 2000, no one had a smartphone. By the end of the decade, right. uh, uh, an intelligent computer was in every single person's pocket. So if you spend any time learning about the rate of technological expansion, chances are you'll come across someone by the name of Ray Kurzweil, who, yes. yeah, uh, <laughs> Kurzweil, in case anyone doesn't know, was this inventor in the 1960s, 1970s. He came out with some really important things I, I should know off of the Speech, top of my head. Uh, text, text to voice or something like that? Yeah, something I, along I think that you, line. You big into speech processing and and and... Yeah, a, a visual stuff as well, but like very fundamental parts of the technology. What's wrong? You're clipping. What? You're clipping. I'm clipping? That's all right. That's all right. We're getting a little clipping on our microphones here. I, I, I talk too loud sometimes. <laughs> you know, y'all are so lucky. I don't have anyone here with me to help me with my technical issues. I'll go 30 <laughs> minutes into a conversation and then realize I never even had my microphone recording. So. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Lean on each other and you'll make it through just fine. Um, the podcasting was great. You know, that's how I really enjoyed spending my time uh, as I was leaving high school, entering into the workforce and everything. The podcast is like, this is this is what I'm meant to do. People say I've got the nice. right voice for it and everything. Yes. But before before I continue on that aspect, Kurzweil's talking about this idea of the law of accelerating returns, which is uh, based off of the, the notion of Moore's law, which is the increasing rate of transistors on chips. It's getting faster. It's doubling every year and six months or some, something like that. We have to think of this as an exponential problem, which is tricky because humankind is actually not equipped to think and deal about the problem of exponentiality. Cough, cough, the coronavirus pandemic. We yep, can see it. I was yes. just about to say right now. People don't today, understand exponents. <laughs> right. You know, our nation's leading health advisors come in front of the American people and say, you need to buckle in. This is about to go absolutely sideways and they're trying to explain to people what a virus that has an r naught of you know four or five can do in a very short time because you know we we evolved on a scale to know like hey you're going to go into this forest and you see a leopard over to the right you're going to go left like that is the rate of thought that people typically have they don't think of that leopard leaving their view and going out and suddenly developing the weapons of mass destruction that they come back to the forest and it's like, oh, I didn't think to deal with that. Yeah, well, because why would you? Right. You know, our brains are exactly. still fundamentally the same as they were thousands and thousands of years ago, but we're dealing with this exponential technology. You know, he said back then, like, Kurzweil started making predictions about this. He said, based on the rate of expansion that I see here, we're going to have computers the size of people's hands in their pockets right around the year 2005 or so he yeah. predicted smartphones and like there were people back then who were saying dude's crazy dude's crazy yeah <laughs> and, like, how would we ever make computers that small yeah right right i mean like he has been right a significant amount of times and it's always hard to be a nostradamus type person because you get proven wrong your credibility goes way down and a lot of people they hear kurzweil's name and they'll kind of shut off and they'll stop paying attention because he because like if you if you expand this 10, 15 years from where we are, it gets really weird and some really right, yeah. weird predictions can happen. You know, he's saying we're going to have uh, smart computers the size of blood cells that are as cheap as pennies. Yeah. yeah. And eventually 
I won't get into the singularity right now. <laughs> we, maybe if we have time right. later on, I'll talk no, about that. No, but I think that. I think you're making a great point, though, is that uh, a lot of his predictions, when you're far away from them, they make absolutely no sense because we don't have this frame of reference to understand exponential growth. Even looking back and recognizing that, hey, he was right from the 60s, 70s, and 80s up until the 2010s, Basically, a lot of the stuff that he was predicting has come to pass already. And then the next 15 years, though, it's still it seems insane to think about some of the stuff he talks about. And so people turn off. But when you actually look at his record and it's not just his record as like a predictor, the actual work that he's done, he's now, uh, uh, I believe, a project lead at, at Google. Um, so so he's very embedded in the community that is making these things happen. He's not just some fringe guy off on the side being like, oh, I think this is going to happen. It's it's very based in what he's actually working on and what these companies are actually doing. So it's important to remember that when you look at his work, because I think you're absolutely right. Some people, they they look at it and they go, this is fan- too fantastic and they turn off. But right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the very least, we can stop today and take a look at what he said and really kind of try and ingrain that within ourselves. For instance, like one, one thing that's important to realize is when you're in an airplane going 500 miles an hour, it doesn't feel to you like you're going 500 miles an hour. Right. We're in an airplane right now that's not just maintaining a fast speed, but it's getting faster and faster right. and faster. So right. that's the first thing. And the second thing that he talks about are, are the, uh, I think he, he says something along the lines of windows of comprehension, which follow a technological curve. And like technology doesn't start with the first transistor, the first computer chip. It actually starts with the wheel. You know, you go back thousands of years to the, the fire, the first thing that brought humans mind human minds the together. The first tool, yeah. Essentially, technology at its core is anything that brings the human brain power to an, to a new level. Fire allowed more right. people to congregate. We kind of communicated a little bit more, and we were able to deal with bigger problems that just one person could not. Uh, so intelligence rises with technology. It's kind of, you know, they, they, have, they share that relationship. Although looking at the reality we live in today doesn't seem the case, right? But uh, so these windows of comprehension is like essentially you go from the wheel to boats and sailing, sailing, you get to eventually the position of gunpowder and guns are this radically changing things. But then if I if I could recommend just for people listening, uh, Wait But Why, written by Tim Urban, it's a blog. Uh, he, he did a, a, a whole long series of posts on this concept of uh the rate of exponential growth within technology, going back to these times, exactly what you're describing here, how we've had already this exponential growth uh, in our past. It's just, it's been so slow that it's hard to see it. But when you actually start to graph it, we are now at this point in the hockey stick of the exponential curve where it's almost feels like it's going straight up. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if, if people want to look into this more deeply, I really recommend uh, Googling Wait But Why, uh, Tim Urban. And I, I don't remember the name of the blog post specifically, but he talks about exponential growth. And it's, it's, really, it's really worth a read. But continue. To the more primitive human who is dealing with the wheel and fire, a, a full cargo ship. Uh, even in like, I guess the 1700s or something would really amaze them if they were looking out on the horizon. It would be hard for them to understand what it was they were looking at. And that is the the kind of comprehension window that is at the core of this is, uh, you know, as a thought experiment, think if you had a time machine and you went back in time, how can you freak people out the most? Uh, and like, you know, <laughs> you, you get to guns and then you get to the automobile. The automobile is going to completely you know, 
baffle anyone who's on horses. They're going to look at that and go, what in the world is that? That's crazy. Right. Hold on. And, and so, you know, you wheel to their big time, shorter time, shorter time. That time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter automobile to the, uh, I don't know, you know, like the atomic bomb happens and then everything goes crazy. Uh, right. so smartphones, and, and this is all just, we are at that point of the curve where it goes skyrocketing. And the, the really kind of scary thing is you can think of it as a scary thing, but if this doesn't slow down, that window of comprehension becomes on the scale of years, right? two years. If you went back two years and you showed people in 2018, this thing, they would go, what? That doesn't make sense. Now we're not quite there yet. Although if you've been paying attention to these weird uh, videos coming out of the Air Force, uh, you know, all these UFO things, this that's possibly what's happening right. there. We're looking at something that looks like magic. We can't we can't we don't understand it yet. Yeah, we don't understand it, but it's just the next rank above on technological uh, on the technological scale. So we're well, not speaking quite of which. If I may interrupt, I really like that explanation better than aliens. <laughs> it makes a little bit more sense. It's a little bit more plausible. Again, I'm yeah, really trying know. not to turn people off Now that we know that there's phosphines on Venus. Right, right. <laughs> we're we're going to talk to somebody from uh, the one of the authors of the paper about the discovery of potential alien life on Venus. So we're excited to hear about that. That's awesome. I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely adding y'all to my my playlist. Um, I'm so nice. happy to know that you guys are talking about these things too. This is important yeah. um, to is. be informing people about like, hey, the future's at our doorstep and we have yes. to prepare for it because uh, technological change is a uh, kind of a precursor to conflict. And if we aren't ready for it, you know, like the Industrial Revolution came along, completely changed labor dynamics in the world forever. And a lot of that had to do with the events that led to World War I. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people think that we always have had the 40-hour work week, but... <laughs> not without labor unions. <laughs> not without labor unions and not without bloodshed and not without right. a lot of bloodshed. A lot of right. conflict that people don't seem to really, you know, at least down here in the South, for sure, our education there doesn't. Was a lot of employers being burned alive for not following uh, labor union laws. Yeah. You want to strike? Oh, well, I've got these you know, thugs that I've hired who are going to mow you down with Tommy guns. Like this right. stuff happened and mm-hmm. uh, and we had to fight for it. And I hope that yep. we can avoid that, that kind of conflict. But, you know, anyways, I'm getting I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, so that <laughs> that window of comprehension getting shorter and shorter, and shorter. Really, right now, if you were to show a smartphone, this is my litmus test. If you were to show an iPhone 11 to someone in the year 2005, it would be hard for them to look at that and say, oh, that makes sense. They would think that it was right. a magic trick. So yeah, I, I think absolutely. We have crossed into the 10 year threshold roundabout. That's I think that's where we are right now. So it's going to it's not going to get longer if 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 Kurzweil is correct, which he has been so far, it's yeah. not going to get longer. It's going to get shorter. We're going to go from 10 to nine, eight. Eventually, you can get to the, the span of months where three months will pass and the world is radically different than it was in the three mm-hmm. months before it. Uh, and that's essentially what Kurzweil is describing as the singularity, right? And he's predicting that to happen in 2035, I think. Yeah, specifically approximately when it reaches like the day when you wake up the next day and you can't comprehend the world around you because the technology is now doing it itself, you know, and at that, it's a, it's, 
it's essentially an event horizon that humanity can't look beyond because we can't right uh just like the black hole you can't see what's going on in there we can't see past this point in the future uh my best guess is like if this happens either uh you know, we'll essentially go into a new simulation if you take the simulation theory or, you know, the AI is going to get so smart, it's going to develop some kind of benevolent simulation for us to exist in. And you can get into some worst case scenarios as well. And also, I need to say right now, before I turn anyone off here, it's very possible <laughs> that the singularity is not a real thing, but it right. Right. It's something to consider, in my opinion. It's yeah. plausible, but not necessarily. Yeah, it's not necessarily uh, set in stone, but like it's not an impossibility for it, sure. It's worth it's worth keeping on 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 the horizon in terms of how we're thinking about the future and thinking about how we need to prepare for it. Uh, what's your experience been, though, when talking about something? Because UBI is already kind of a radical suggestion for a lot of people. And when you start getting into these crazy ideas of the future, not very many people have spent enough time thinking about it um, where they can kind of engage with it in, in a positive way. Uh, have you had any experience with maybe introducing people to UBI without quite going into this extreme view of the technological future? And I don't say extreme, meaning it's not likely extreme in the sense that it's like very difficult for people to wrap their heads around. Yeah, you're not going to sway anyone to this when they, you know, they're coming home from a long day of work and you're trying to explain exponential technology to them. It's right. <laughs> this is a conversation that can happen over drinks and you have to have the conversational ability and knowledge beforehand to to like guide them along without them going, why am I friends with you? You know, <laughs> so, 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 yeah. Yep. You know, people can wind like outside of all of that that I just went into, people can wind up at UBI in a few different ways. Uh, it can be technology, I think, is the most common one is like, oh, the robots are right. going to come and take all of our jobs. And I think that's a little short sighted because uh, people will clearly talk about disruption beforehand, even though that's a faulty argument, for instance, like saying, oh, well, we've jobs have been lost before and new jobs have uh, started creative destruction, that that entire thing, which isn't quite accurate because, you know, why are we working so many more hours? We're more stressed out than ever. When Maynard Keynes said we would have 15 hour work weeks by now, if you've read the book, uh, Bullshit Jobs by, uh, oh, uh, Graber, I forgot his first name, David Graber, I believe that that's one mm. very good you know, look. And yes, we, we have more work now, but it's not because there's more opportunity and more ways to make money. It's because we've never shifted our ideas about what work means. But I, I, I want to really pick that apart as its own concept here. The question you asked of what's a good way to bring people into this discussion I do think for, for me, at least, it is the technology, but instead of saying, oh, robots are going to come and take all of our jobs and artificial intelligence is going to do all of this, the, the better way to approach it is actually by saying, hypothetically, say robots did come and take every single job. How do you know the point in which you say, hey, everything's good now, right? Like, look at the system itself and, and realize that a job is more than a way to make money. A job is a way to occupy people. And yeah. the owner of a self-driving car uh, enterprise, he's not like, he will have a job for you to do. It'll be opening the door for him as he gets into a self-driving car. You'll be a butler. Like, 
there will always be work to do, just like that teacher you had in high school who always had some kind of busy work available for you. The question of, well, do we have enough jobs? Yeah, absolutely. Do we have fulfilling jobs? What does it mean to be fulfilled? What does it mean to be engaged in the world that we live in? And also, what exactly are we doing, right? Like, uh, this is the thing is you, you you talk about the question of scarcity and abundance. The abundance gospel, I think, is my preferred method of broaching this subject and saying, okay, I, I've gotten some mixed results on this, but I, I broach it with the question, do you think that it's right in the society that we live in, where we all agree that work is so important, we don't want lazy parasites, and we want to encourage people to live their own self-sustaining life. Do you think it's right that a single mother taking care of her children uh, won't get paid for the labor that she does, raising the child, uh, you know, supporting it emotionally, mentally, all of that work spent? She won't see a dime for any of that. But now we've reached a point in which video game streamers can make hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, right? I've said this before that my my entire mind kind of broke and I've never got it back since the day that I saw a video game streamer make $1,000 in under an hour while I was watching uh, his maid in the background making his bed. And he's playing World of Warcraft. Wow. You know, and I looked at that and it's just like, Okay, this is now the immediate response you'll get from someone when you broach that subject is, well, there's always been occupations of silly things like football players and entertainment. It's it's just the same kind of thing. And and like, okay, I won't argue against that, but 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 we have to ask, right, what is the meritocracy? What is valuable? Uh, Right, exactly. So, you know, when Yang started talking about human value is not the same as economic value. This is exactly what he was trying to say, like. You can give someone $50,000 for going through and taking out every red jelly bean in your bowl before work, that secretary, (laughs) but is that really valuable? And some people will insist that the market just accounts for all of this, the invisible hand and everything and all of that nonsense when no, it's just, that's not the case whatsoever. Bullshit jobs is really a wonderful look into this that shows this, he calls it a mental uh, scar, or an emotional scar on a national level that people are inherently unfulfilled or not everyone, but a large proportion of people hate their jobs. They are unfulfilled and it's causing uh, mental violence. It's causing, you know, we have a mental illness epidemic in this country and no one wants to talk about the fact that maybe it's because our working uh, system is completely broken. We're more than happy to talk about Japan and say, oh, they worked themselves to death and suicide such an issue, blah, blah, blah. But no, we, we deal with the same problems here. And we just don't take care of our people the same way they do. A hundred percent. So like for me, this this can be explained by going back to the founding of the country. Uh, and there's so many dynamics at play. But one of them was the the puritanical work ethic that we instilled into people when we came to this country. Uh, the you know, the the predominant kind of thinking at that time was that people were born with original sin, that they had something inside of them that was forever tainted. They were sinners. They were always going to be sinners. And the way that you got closer to God was through toil, through hard work. 
Right. You can see this manifest itself in different ways too, like the self-flagellation, people who whip themselves on the back because they're, they have to suffer. And if you don't suffer, you don't get closer to God. Right. Do you know Christopher Hitchens? I actually have not listened to, to any of his work, no. He, he hammers this point home over and over again in his critique of religion and saying that essentially the Christian faith specifically, uh, you know, and the founding of this country, which was it was based off of, uh, it basically is, com- is saying that you are born sick and commanding you to be well through effort and through toil and through hard work and through self-flagellation, essentially. So it's, yeah, it's interesting to hear you compare that to, you know, not just from the Christian faith, but also in the founding of this country. It's something that's been very instilled in our society in the way that we look at work and the way that we look at the value of a human life is essentially to be in toil to God or in toil to the system. And now the new God is, of course, you know, GDP and, and stock market growth and, and all of that. That is our God today. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, 100 percent. And it, you know, it, it had its own faults back then, I'm sure. But it, it served a utility, I suppose. And I mean, I've always thought about going to New York City. I've never been. And you, you spend any time in that city and you look around and you can see what our work ethic has accomplished. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's not just the work ethic by itself. There's so much historical uh, things to consider. But the work ethic has worked to some degree, it's falling apart as technology grows and grows and grows. We cannot fall back on that. And there is a huge paradox in the fact that we continue to try to, and it'll get very ugly for us if we continue falling back on this and we don't address it just due to the nature and the ways that work is going to change by necessity uh, within the next decade. So, you know, this is this is why I like talking about it because I want to ask people like, are you happy? Are you happy with what you do for a living? Because as Mm. I was escaping, um, as I I said, escaping, as I graduated high school in the early 2010s, it started entering in the workforce. That feels like an escape. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I started flipping tables and I started kind of, you know, dealing with the, the new reality of being a millennial being someone who exists in this very unequal, unequal society. Uh, Bernie spoke to me in many different ways. And again, I grew up conservative. So, you know, it was clear to me that the world that I lived in was different than the generation before. And I started asking, well, why is that? Things started to fit in together as I was looking at the technological changes. And I realized that we have already incurred displacement and people are uh, lost and, and this this affects different parts of the country differently. But there are people in the, the, the Rust Belt who are lost and they've been neglected and left behind. And we're going to see something bad happen. Like this was before 2016 that I started thinking this. And all wow. of a sudden, yeah, yeah. I was thinking like how many we, we've lost manufacturing jobs, but our. So wait a second. I'm sorry. I have to pause you there. You came to these conclusions on your own without being influenced by somebody like Yang or Scott Santins or some some other advocate within the community. Yeah, I actually did not support Yang the first moment that he announced his run. I I was hugely skeptical of him. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah, because to me, universal basic income had grown into something very personal, and I didn't trust Yang to treat it right, treat it correctly. So you're an OG. You're oh, a yeah. pre-Yang UBI guy. Wow. I was, All right. 
I was delivering pizzas when I heard his uh, podcast with Joe Rogan. And when I realized when he started talking and he was saying these things, I like, I, I punched my, my, the roof of my car and I was like, thank you. You've got this. Like wow. I knew, yeah, yeah. I knew something big was about to happen at that point. And I, I really am not trying to give myself like uh, too much credit here or anything, but yeah, I was thinking about these things uh, for a while and and it's like, you can see it happening. And that, that's almost like the yeah. curse of what it means to be someone who supports universal basic income is because you have a lot of reason to believe and to know that you are right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the you longer, have a lot of evidence to support it. Yeah. Right. And, and the longer and longer that we go without doing something, uh, the scarier the, the consequences seem to be, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Like again, I, I started trying to fundamentally create a view of the world that made sense of the transformation that I saw us going through. I created this entire kind of understanding based on the rate of technological change. And then I started asking questions like, because I was having a hard time dealing with all of these thoughts and also maintaining a stable foot in the workforce. I've been through like six different careers or so. And I, I my mental health started to decline throughout those years. And, uh, you know, I've, I've dealt with some very kind of hard issues in terms of why do I suffer so much every single day going into these jobs? You know, I, I didn't make it through college. Uh, I made some bad decisions, but, you know, around the time it was this very fundamentally changing aspect. It was right after the 2008 financial crisis and everyone's families are falling apart and everything, blah, blah, blah. And so I started really wondering like, and then like I would go home and I would watch these Twitch streamers make more than I was making in a year. They would make right. it a month, you know, right. playing Just video sitting around games. playing fucking video games. Yeah. And, and like, I love video games, you know, and I would love like, to why do can't that. I do this. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want to knock them down a notch. It's very difficult. I spent some time trying to be a Twitch streamer and it's hard. It's, it's hard and it comes with its own bag of problems. And I don't think mm -hmm. we talk about the mental health of video, video game streamers like we need to. Um, but I, I really did kind of have to come to terms with like, how are we treating people in this society? And if I extrapolate this down 10 years, like the woman and her son, uh, the single, the single mom is the parasite in society, but the kid who's playing video games, he's, he is valuable, right? The same people that we said 10 years ago, like, Oh, stop playing video games. You're going to be a parasite and lazy, blah, blah, blah. They are now, the millionaires, they are now right. making hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So like, I, I'm looking around at everyone around me and saying, why aren't we talking about this a little bit more, right? Because poverty is, is a big issue. And around that time, you know, I start the very first time that I heard about the notion of a universal basic income, it was like someone presented it. And I had all these questions, I had all these like, wh what's going to happen? And I saw it and I was like, well, that's a terrible idea. Like, that's awful. <laughs> that was my same reaction. I, I So I, I discovered it through, actually through Andrew Yang. Uh, I was a big follower of uh, Sam Harris, still am. Uh, he went on the Sam Harris podcast. This was before Joe Rogan. And I heard him talking about this stuff. And I'm like, you can't just give people my, all the questions that now you, as a UBI advocate, you deal with when you present it to other people. You just smile when you hear them because you're like, I had the same response. And let me walk you through what caused me to change my mind. That's so interesting to hear. Do you remember who it was or where it was that you first heard about the term? 
it was i think on a futurology post on on reddit or something where okay where it was talking about the rapid rate of expansion of change i think around that time tesla had just released their autopilot version i can't believe it was that long ago they, right. they posted a video of the car driving itself to a person uh paint it black was the music playing on the video and like everyone <laughs> you know it, it went viral everyone's talking about it and suddenly people are like do you know how many people deliver uh Right. cargo in this country like it is the number one job in 29 states right, right. Uh, like this is huge and people started talking about all the issues what are people going to do for a living why is this different than displacement of the before and then someone like mentioned like well this is a pretty crazy idea but why not just give people money and then he posted a link to i think rogan had had someone on years and years before who kind of mentioned oh, wow. passing yeah okay and and so through that I, I started thinking about it a little bit more often i stumbled across scott santons and that's when i started yes. really kind of digging into it you know doing the work yes. and trying and I, I would present every single uh, like objection that i had to it like but what about this and it was like yeah right. I, I know why you would think that but let's talk about it and it's like i mean right. let's let's take a second though to to, to give a shout out to scott because scott santons is the original ubi advocate the og the man has spent i don't know how many years now uh thinking these issues through trying to figure out how to communicate them to people in a way that helps people make that progression from oh my god this is a crazy idea and here are all the the, the, the hundreds of reasons i can think of why this doesn't make any sense to me and it's not going to work and he has taken the time to break down each one of them and explain why maybe this isn't actually the problem you think it is and here are all the ways that this can actually help overcome those problems that you and i share in agreement uh, on that 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 we think this is going to be an issue so huge shout out to Scott. I really hope to have the opportunity to interview him one day because he really has been the fundamental grounding force that has enabled this movement to go from being this fringe idea to something that could be embraced by a mainstream presidential campaign in Andrew Yang and have all of the data behind it to be able to, to make that push in a, in a really uh, concrete way. So huge shout out to him. I just want to take a second to thank him for that. <laughs> I also wanted to ask, um, so you mentioned before how VR ties back into universal basic income, but like, I don't think we fully completed that thought. I'm just curious how you uh, say that VR kind of translates back to universal basic income. So as I was doing the podcast, Building the Oasis, uh, I joined this really cool kind of weekly discussion group where people were talking about futurism and things like that. And one of the interviews that I had was with a woman who was almost homeless, she said. And it was very cool. Like everyone shows up every Wednesday. You put on your headset, you go into VR chat and like they choose a room and you all stand around and, you know, the person who's talking goes into the middle of the circle. And I like that was fun. Those social engagements where other people are there and you're talking to people. And she mentioned that she was on the verge of homelessness until she found VR chat and she found that people would would spend $50 a pop for avatars, custom made avatars. And they had like a lineup of some of the things she had made. One person came in, he was wearing an avatar that she built. It was wild. He, he was a humanoid, but the entire innards of his body were the cosmos. You could like look in and see oh, the stars twinkling. Awesome. Yeah. And his yeah. head was like a stag and his antlers were just curving around in the air. And it, he was tall. He was like 10 feet tall. And like you look at it and it was like, this is beautiful. And she made Something it. Something straight up like D&D. &D, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And she made it and she she sold it for $50. And now she's like, she's got her own business in virtual That's reality. Awesome. Yeah. And wow. So like, again, we get back to that concept of parasitism. And, and this woman who just, she just didn't have the place for her to do her thing. Like she loves this now. And this is now how she provides value to society. And we were about to let her just fall to the wayside, you know? Right. And and like that was um that was one thing. So the question of how does VR tie into it? VR ties into it because it's when people think about UBI and they think about the question of what are people going to do when robots take everything and artificial t- intelligence takes everything? It's that's that's the wrong question. People are thinking about it completely wrong. Value can be anything. Value is anything. Value is anything that two humans agree has value. Without humans, right. nothing in the universe is valuable. Our our economy and our society is fundamentally being held back by our uh, reluctance, our inability to deal with poverty, which is a societal concept, right? Poverty doesn't exist in the natural world. Um, mm. Without civilization, yes, it's it's a pure survival game. You go out, you uh, acquire your resources, you eat, you live. Poverty is when a society says, if you don't do what we say, we're not going to give you the resources you need to survive. Like today's age, you can't go out into the woods and uh, acquire your own resources and eat from right. the land. You'll get kicked off the land or you'll deal with uh, pollution from the local industry sector. Uh, or even if you do start a commune, look at what happened to Waco, Texas. Like they don't want you doing that. Uh, you right. have to play <laughs> by the rules. So this is the concept of the social contract, right? Before we're born, when we enter into this world, there's been a contract that's been signed. We didn't have any say in it, but we're going to participate in society because that's the way the world is. Uh, and and one of the things that... <laughs> And this is something that I, I, especially given the social justice movement that's happening in this move, uh, this moment, uh, all of the arguments that are going back and forth, you know, we need change in, in the way that our society polices itself. And it's because the social contract is fundamentally broken and it's, it's broken for a specific group of our population too. And the other group doesn't see it. And they have to say, this is this contract is BS, man. I didn't get to sign it. And you have this power over me. And I, you know, you need, we need to change this. We need to fix this. We need to come together. And, and I forget her name and I really wish that I, I can remember it. But uh, last week tonight with John Oliver, he, he ended his show on police brutality with her, her segment. And she just, she put it perfectly. She said like, this is what we're asking for. And this is the reason why trouble is happening. So from that aspect, the social contract's broken. And from the aspect of our labor agreement in that social contract, it is also fundamentally broken by technology. It may have been less broken in the past, but it's becoming more and more broken. And like, okay, so Tom Cotton, wanted, I hate to get political here, but like <laughs> UBI does tie into every single aspect of our world. Tom Cotton, one of the possible picks for the new Supreme Court justice seat, said something along the lines of, well, slavery was a um, was a necessary evil. And then they come back <laughs> and he says, oh, well, they misquoted me. They're like, I don't believe it is a necessary evil. I was saying in the, the 
the concept of this historical thing. It's like, no, dude, you said that. And we do have those were your words. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what people don't understand is that slavery held us back. It held our country back on an economic front, not just the morality of that issue in, in general. Uh, but the Industrial Revolution didn't take off. There was no labor. You had a monopoly on labor in the agricultural mm. sector. You know, wow. there was no room for innovation. There was no room for anything because you had this gross, disgusting control over the entire labor aspect of that economy. Once slavery wow. is abolished, there's now uh, there's now room to come in with new solutions to that work, to that entire uh, that question of like, well, how are we going to feed our country? It, it was not a necessary evil. That is the most disgusting thing. And, the, and the, it's just the. Like, I don't want to get cancel culture here because there is a group of our society that does believe this. And I think it's important for us to be able to explain why that's not the case and why it's also not the case that wage slavery today is necessary for our society mm -hmm. to function. It's not. And it's actually holding us back. And, and we that. We like we will never reach the stars if we keep on holding on to this idea that you have to like work to earn your keep. The moment that we reach the stars is the moment that we tell people, hey, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay whether you work or not. How do you want to engage in society? Find out how to do it. You've got your basic tools. You, you, we trust you. We trust you to do it because you're human. We're all human. And we're not that different from one another, right? When, when the wealthy have a passive income just based off of the capital that they own, do they stop working? I right. mean, I'm sure there are some wealthy kids out there who sit around and do nothing all day. They're their never parents are still working, despite the fact that their parents are the ones that made all the money originally. Exactly. This critique of UBI is one of the ones that I have found uh, most abhorrent uh, fundamentally from a moral level, but I've also recognized that it is a reaction that's, that, that is so natural to have to this concept of just giving people free money. You're going to make them lazy. You're going to turn them into drug addicts. They're going to sit around playing video games all day. They're not going to become contributing members to society. And what people are saying by that is they're not contributing in the social contract that I was forced to contribute in, and I think that's unfair. Rather than saying that when we release people from this social contract, we give them the just the floor, just a floor to stand on. We're not going to give them enough money to be wealthy. We're not going to give them enough money that they should be satisfied with their lives. We're going to give them a floor to stand on so that they can then pursue new forms of value in society that we never even comprehended. Mm -hmm. And these types of value, this is where innovation come from, comes from. When you look at entrepreneurship in this country, it doesn't come from some mom or some young kid working three to four jobs to make ends meet. It comes from somebody who has enough to get by that they can step back, they can take a deep breath, and they can say, what new value do I want to bring to the world and do I want to test in the economy? And you can't do that without a floor to stand on. And so when you look at our, our economy of people, the, the, the millions of people in this country and the billions of people in the world, how much incredible ingenuity is being wasted on dead-end jobs, on worthless jobs, on jobs that do not need to be done by human beings. But because we have this, this labor capital that is very cheap, that, that, that we have access to, you know, it was cheap in this country and then we exported it to other countries where it was even cheaper. But we still have it in this country where you have people, if you go around New York City today, the number one thing you're going to see is immigrants 
predominantly it appears to be either from South America or from Africa, sitting around on these motorized bicycles, waiting for that ding on their phone so they can pick up some order from some restaurant and bring it to some wealthy person's home. Mm -hmm. This is the new economy in New York City and, and Uber drivers and all these other gig workers. When you look at over the past decade, I think Yang says something like 90% of all the jobs created over the past decade are independent contractor jobs. People don't have any job security. And so they're being forced to, to do all these things without any... Uh, they're not taking part in the, the wins of the economy. The capital is winning. It's, it's creating all this excess um, uh, value that, that is being pumped into GDP. And it's like, yeah, the stock market's doing great, but it, so many people are being left out of this. You know, they don't have the opportunity to create the next biggest thing. And we as a society end up losing when we don't have as many people as possible standing on a floor, looking up at the stars and saying, how do I want to contribute something new to the world? Mm -hmm. So I love I love that perspective on it. Yeah, there's two there's two big things here, right? First, isn't it ironic that one of the the most often referred talking points to capitalism is capitalism is the most efficient way to get goods and new innovations to the American people. And capitalism has this curve downwards of making things cheaper uh, over time. And it's like, well, yes. you actually get to the point in which, yes, everything is cheap, right? You know, I saw someone, it was, the, it was disgusting. It killed me, you know, because I'm a very emotional person. I take these things to heart. But he was evicting the, these, these tenants from their house during the, the, the pandemic. And it's like, right. he, he was asked, like, don't you feel bad about this? He said, if you go into that house, you're going to find a flat screen TV. These people are parasites. I'm like, dude, where do you go to get a TV these days? That's not a flat screen, you know? Right. right. But also like flat screen TVs are so much cheaper than they were even just yeah. like 10 years ago yeah. when I bought a flat screen TV in like 2010, it was like $1,100 for an HDTV. And now that exact same TV, except better, a 4k version is, 300 fucking dollars right. so like it's a bigger tv it's a better quality tv it does more things than the original but it's not even half the price so like okay they went to costco and bought a tv for like two three hundred dollars so that makes them a parasite because they've had that since they moved in before the pandemic took their jobs away. But we face this argument all the time. People look at, at, at other people and they say that, oh, they're not leading their lives in the same way that I sacrificed to get to where I'm at. And so therefore they're bad people and we shouldn't support them as a society. Or I can't justify their spending because I would be more fiscally responsible in their situation, right. not knowing what their situation actually is. But it comes back to, I think what you're saying is a fundamental distrust of other people. Mm -hmm. We don't believe that other people are going to do what's right unless we create this sort of social bondage of forcing them into a labor market where they have to compete in the same ways that we had to compete in order to get to where we are today. So how do we break out of that? How do we convince people that that's not the right way to look at it? Well, as a rule of thumb, when broaching the subject of a UBI with other people, don't if they say anything of like, oh, well, people are going to abuse this, say you want to ask them and you want to get the conversation to them and you want to say, what are you going to do with a thousand dollars a month? And, and a lot of people like to stick their head in the sand and say, I don't need any help. Right. I, right. I, 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 and I'm like, dude, you're, you're always begging for tax breaks. You know, you're always, right. this is a tax break essentially for you. Enjoy it. It's a tax break for you, and it's a social safety net, not a safety net, right? The safety net has floors that people fall through. 
has cracks right. in it. We have a safety floor that replaces rock bottom. That's it, dude. Right. You, it's more efficient, you know, and you can address people from this point. It's good to go into the uh, the efficiency and the, talk about how we need to evolve our safety net, our welfare net, because our welfare net has been built on these same notions. And it's right. so easy to continually... Um, workfare is is the problem there so like okay there's a few different points and i, I just kind of want to take each of them step by step uh we have to talk about scarcity we have to talk about abundance when we're talking about these things and we also have to you know mention the point that like yeah this is the inherent issue like i said there's never going to be a point in time where there aren't any jobs to do there will always be jobs to do and there's also never going to be a point in time where we reach a society of abundance because if if we if we fundamentally believe that the world is scarce like okay there's not there's not going to be an abundant earth we have a certain finite amount of resources but there is relative abundance there is enough that can support um the people and we can do it in an environmentally sustainable way but that's an entire subject for another day what i'm trying to say is we already waste you know like a third of the food that we produce in this country right we have long since had the abundance of housing. I worked in real estate. I was a, a real estate agent for a bit and I found out, you know, we have eight empty homes for every single homeless person in this country. Yep. And like big homes too. Yeah. And they're just not allowed to take those homes because, well, that would drive the market down. Right. Right. So I'm I'm excited about telework in that in that scenario because it's not about those eight houses specifically. We can build affordable housing, but also yeah, demand is going to be more fluid when we can work in places that we want. Uh, it's not going to happen organically. We need to come up with good solutions on a uh, on a political scale for that problem. But the the land issue is not an issue. People like to think it is the food issue is not an issue the water issue possibly but we are getting close to sustainable desalination technologies uh right. especially as we have more renewable energy we will have we will be able to harness the oceans uh as a drinking supply not an issue uh even food as we get to the concepts of uh lab-grown meat and ver vertical agriculture we can yeah. have uh, we can have bioreactors sent out to villages in third world countries that can provide grown meat from a central source that you don't have to worry about transporting to and from. Like we are on the cusp of essentially ending all of the fundamental aspects of what it means to be alive in the world. And it's very disingenuous for people to try to say otherwise because they don't have the correct framing of, of why they're saying that. So, you know, right. you very well can wind up in a situation in which like we get 10 years down the road, people are impoverished. Single mothers with kids are just destitute. And it's like, well, you just should have worked harder. And that's code for you just should have been more charismatic. Maybe you should have just been able to pull off more 360 no scopes in Call of Duty because that's <laughs> what's valuable, right? If or you should have disregarded the things that you ended up uh, valuing and you should have focused only on economic value and economic output, which is not everybody's interest in the world. And then we penalize them as a result of that because we don't fundamentally value human beings. We value their economic output. And we need to reframe that. Right, right. Okay. And, and on your point there, yes. What's another big thing that you hear from these people is, well, work brings people fulfillment. And, and even if there's better things for them to do, like they, they, they have a point in, in saying we have built this 
structure in place for decades and decades and centuries of, of, uh, you know, you go to work, you punch your card and people do live in this rut where I, I think if you took that away from them, all of a sudden they, they wouldn't know what to do. I worked with this woman who was rich turning tables, uh, waiting tables. And she, she was wealthy, but she just didn't know what to do with her time. And so she was mm. working a job just to work a job, just to meet people and talk to people and have a social life. Again, that's, that's a big thing too. Do people believe that work is fulfillment or do people believe that if they had enough to take care of the basics, they would just stop altogether, right? It's a, it's a right. very big disconnect in the way that the logic runs here. Like that's the thing. If you address this logic, if you just sit down and have this conversation, one, it's an interesting conversation. And two, you can make them go, yeah, wait, hold on. This does does not make any sense at all. I'm living in a right. Freaky Friday dystopia book. It. What are we doing here exactly? So they, uh, you know, that's the thing though. If if someone really, really, really wants to work an office job that isn't going to be there after we accept the relative abundance that already exists today, we've got virtual reality, dude. I will code you in office space in the exact yeah, type of work so that you've been doing for 50 <laughs> years and you can just sit in there and have at it man but do not do not drag the rest of us down who who have visions for something more because right. you feel comfortable with the way that uh, we're lying to ourselves right now you know yeah i'm not trying to do your tps reports <laughs> yeah yeah 100%. yeah so yeah, I think I think that, that that's really exciting to to start thinking about, you know, how we can re-envision the world in a way that we are enabling more people to be entrepreneurs. Because really, at the end of the day, uh, our society right now is penalizing entrepreneurship. You know what I mean? You can only be an entrepreneur if you are born to the right family with the right level of income floor under you. Unless you're born with a UBI, essentially, is what it is being born into one of those families, then we don't want you being an entrepreneur. And I think that that's just we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot when it comes to that. And that's that's the important thing to reframe this argument as it's like I want a UBI purely out of selfish reasons, not because I want the money from UBI, because I want to live in a society that uplifts people so that I'm surrounded by people that are looking to the stars and are thinking of new ways to transform society. Because if we're just kicking people off their jobs, you know, the truckers, the call center workers, uh, you know, the fast food workers, the retail workers, all these administrative kind of jobs that it, artificial intelligence is going to completely eliminate if we're just kicking these people off their jobs and saying see ya there's nothing for you in the economy anymore and we're not going to give you any floor to stand on to find the next thing we're in for a really bad time so yeah i think it's important to reframe it from that perspective of we want this you want this you're you're gonna want this everyone you just, benefits from this right yeah. you just don't fully understand yet why it's going to be important to you and like this is this is the thing too um there, there are some people out there who are evil. There are some people out there who take advantage of systems. There are some people out there who, for one reason or another, just don't quite get along with other people. And we have a criminal justice system in place, ideally, that works to to address those situations. Like, if you can just accept for me for a moment that there is a portion of people on hard times who would not be in hard times because of a basic income, right? If I, I sometimes frame it right. like this, even though I think there, it's kind of problematic in some ways, but I say, listen, let's say that I'm, I come up to you in a parking lot uh, and I say, and I give you this story of why I need money. Uh, my wife is in the hospital. I'm out of gas. I need to get to her. And I just you know, it's been such a hard month, right? I'm telling you this entire story and you have to decide and judge 
whether I'm telling you the truth or not. And then, you know, you go into Walmart, you go out, you head over to the crystal. There I am sitting eating food and, you know, an entire sack of crystal. And like you, you think, oh, he, he played me. I got hustled or something. Uh, now, let's, let's think of that scenario after the implementation of a universal basic income, uh, basic income that everyone gets on the same day at the first of the month. Uh, I come up to you, I say, I, I really hate to ask this of you, but I am down on some really hard times right now and I could use some cash. What is your first thought going to be? Well, buddy, you got $1,000. What day of the month is it? Okay. Uh, what did you do with your cash? You said your wife's in the hospital. What did she do with her $1,000? What exactly is going on here? And I mean, given our healthcare system right now, it's probably accurate to say that he would still need to be in some bit of a health. But, but in the, the, the important thing is that instead of you being a judge of that person with having no information about them whatsoever to go off of, it's now a fundamentally different relationship that you have with poor people because they have that cushion. You are no longer on the, 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 uh, on the call of trying to fix societal issues because it's now baked into the system. There is something right. there to address poverty and, and you don't have to like just float alone in that process. Um, my hope is that you would be someone who is taking your universal basic income and trying to uh, patch up all of the externalities that a thousand dollars itself couldn't fix. Right. Because right. Uh, even that is going to, there, there are going to be people and there are going to be chains of hard events and emergency expenses that go over the thousand. They're going to get the, what they need the next month and the month after that, like they can build up to it, but we're still going to need some um, people trying to help out uh, communities in need. That's what kills me so much about the entire argument that a lot of people on the left come back with. And they say, well, a thousand dollars is not enough to blah, blah, blah. It's like, you are not thinking about this critically enough. You are not thinking. Did you know that it almost passed in, in the house of representatives? I think it did pass in the house of representatives, but it, 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 it but in the seventies, it, it didn't end up passing in the Senate because the Democrats said that it wasn't enough money. Mm-hmm. That we would have a UBI today that could have been increased over that time had it not been blocked by the left because it wasn't enough. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the left really likes to stand in their own way. We we shoot ourselves in the foot sometimes. Specifically liberals, not necessarily the left because the left is the one trying to drag the liberals along. But right. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely it's, it's an interesting challenge that we face from both sides when it comes to universal basic income, because it really is. It's a topic that or, or it's a policy that can and should be bipartisan. And I think that the argument can be made from both sides to convince both sides why this is good from the framework of how you see the world and the things that you value. Uh, I'd actually really be interesting to hear your, your take on, on the conservative argument for universal basic income, because I know Milton Friedman, a famous conservative economist, was a uh, proponent of what he called the negative income tax, which was like what you, you talked about earlier. It's like it's a tax break. Right. But it's a negative tax break, meaning that that essentially, you know, rather than paying taxes, you're getting a certain amount back because of the value that society is creating. We're all getting a dividend. When, and I love the, the word dividend. You know, pe- when you tell people, hey, you know, if you if you own shares in Exxon and, and they make a certain amount of money and you get a dividend from that, is that going to make you lazy? <laughs> all these negative ideas that people have about UBI, you say, well, what about dividends with stocks? You know what I mean? It, why can't we have a dividend just from being a citizen of this country? I think that's a really nice way to look at it. But I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on like the conservative perspective on why UBI might be good from, you know, a, a red state perspective, people in these rural states who tend to vote more conservative, like why would, wh- why should they care about something like a UBI? So you bring up a lot of good points there that I, I'm going to try and address each part 
one step after the other. Uh, conservatives or more, more fundamentally like free market advocates believe in the idea that the market works best when, when you, you're hands off about it and that you don't want to put too much government into any sort of transaction because it messes up this beautiful relationship that, uh, that capitalism has with innovation and whatnot. I'm not sure. For instance, uh, <laughs> what what really kind of changed my what hit me like a brick on the head when I realized this was okay. I'm going to have to do a little bit of of, uh, of digging before that. Have y'all seen the Social Dilemma on Netflix? We we both just watched it, and I watched your uh, your episode on it as well. Oh, hey, thank you for checking out my channel. It, it always makes yeah, me absolutely. blush there. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so if you have not seen this, if you're listening to this, you need to go and watch it immediately. Wait until after this episode's over. Uh, it's Or like pause it and come back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you could. You could do that. But make sure you get this all done in one day. Uh, so it's <laughs> super critical that we deal with this issue. It's the most pressing problem, I think, or at least one of the top five pressing problems that we have right now is really? how is our uh, behavior being manipulated by uh, an algorithm that exists to extract our attention on social media, on websites, uh, how we use the internet. What's really problematic is thinking about like how the internet came to be is uh, it's this series of tubes, I think someone called it uh, decades ago, right? Like, what is email? And they're trying to figure out exactly what this is in the 90s. Uh, it was mostly, it was the war effort, right? Turing was designing um, right. military technology to help us win World War II. Yes. Right. That entire time the proto-internet was being developed through taxpayer-funded funds, revenue. And it, it never stopped from there. The, the internet is essentially a product of taxpayer investment, which is a hard right. pill for free market economists and pure you know, laissez-faire capitalists to understand is that as you're sitting there arguing about why capitalism is the absolute best thing. And again, the, the capitalism socialism dichotomy, splitting it down the middle and there's left versus right. It's so wrong, but this is what they do is like, when you say I sent from my iPhone, like look at that iPhone, the touchscreen was developed by DARPA. The GPS right. navigation was the Navy. The every single piece of hardware in that phone was developed from collectivized funding from taxpayers. There was not a mm -hmm. single person behind the iPhone. They just took all of that hardware, wrapped it into a package, and put the Apple logo on it. The software, yes, there's a very, very good um, software involved in the iPhone. It's very user-friendly, and it does a lot of things that are important and a lot of things that deserve compensation and revenue from. But they, they built this it's now trillion trillion dollar industry off of the back of the generations that came before us it is a social inheritance that has been uh, privatized privatized and th then they turn around and they don't pay taxes right mm. they, it, it, this is gross it is gross and if you believe in the free market there's a belief that innovation comes from uh correct compensation that if there's ever a point in which labor isn't being correctly compensated that's what's called a market inefficiency because it, the incentive structure exists to be a positive feedback loop 
this is a market inefficiency, this privatization of a collective innovation. And it has caused us, again, like the slavery issue, it was not a necessary evil. It is restraining us. And I actually agree with the libertarians when they say, hey, you don't want to mess with this. We need to be compensated. We need to be compensated for the work that not only our parents did, but our nation did as a whole. We are not mm. – um, we are not islands all swimming separately in the sea. We are one country, and it's important that we understand that fundamentally. So the social dilemma itself deals with the problem of right now this industry is mining our brains like a resource, right. like a gold mine, and making money off of it, and you aren't being compensated for it, right? Facebook is a media company that doesn't create any media You are creating the content that is bringing eyeballs to their site. Where's your check? You're working for them. You're giving your labor up for free, for free. And if you are a free market capitalist, like that should infuriate you, man. You're being taken advantage of. And again, these people spend so much time like really buying into this. And there's cognitive dissonance when you're dealt with this after a lifetime of believing this, that they'll actually turn around and say, well, well, no one forced you to sign the terms of service agreement. (laughs) I love it. Right. (laughs) It's like, oh, okay, well, cool. Why are you defending yourself being taken advantage of? Right. Don't do that. Again, do yeah. you believe in the free market or not? You need to be compensated for your labor, and no person in their right mind would exist in a society uh, like this if they actually knew what was going on. But people don't. People just don't. This, right. this escapes them. Uh, so you know, it's it's we we are fundamentally we are shareholders, and we need a citizen's dividend. And that's the yeah. the deeper point. Is like some people think of UBI as if it's just a social welfare policy, that it's just some sort of sunk cost thing, a service, if you will, right. like the military or like the postal service. But people never think about the external costs of not having a thing. What are, what are the external costs of not having the military? They love to talk about that. Hey, all of that right. crazy billions of dollars worth of spending is important because it keeps us safe. What are the external costs, right? What are the external costs of not having uh, a safeguard against poverty? Uh, Scott Santens calls this the, the, the Einstein cost. People always talk about what's the cost of a UBI? Can we afford it? No, the question is, right. can, can we afford to lose an Einstein every single day who is lost to poverty, who through no problem of their own was left to uh, succumb to an unjust tool of our society. Like that, that is a cost that we can't measure that is undoubtedly worth trillions and trillions of dollars. That's what we're paying. And that's how we need to think about this. Um, So man, you know, I, I, I get pretty passionate about this because I do think it's important. I think people need to fundamentally understand this. And like you said, it's something that the left and the right should be able to come together under. And I fundamentally do believe it's a winning policy platform. If people just think about it long enough, they come around to it. I mean, I grew up in the South. I have these conversations with some pretty red leaning members and like we, we can still get along. It, it's a hard, you know, tribalism and everything, the political thing, it's so hard to get through. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we, we very well might succumb to tribal conflict before we fix the problem. And that would be the most Shakespearean tragedy to occur in a civilization. But I, I have to have faith and optimism that we can do better and that, and that we will kind of cross that finish line. Uh, 
Yeah, this year is looking a little scary. So the, the 2016 election is looking a little scary. I'm not ready to throw in the towel. I, I think that, that this you fight can be won. the 2020 election? Are we in 2020? Is it not 2016 anymore? God, I like I almost want to go back, but like No, I do not want to go back. It's over. It's done. I'm yeah, not reliving no, I mean, these four years. No, I mean I don't want to relive <laughs> these four years. It's just life was so much different back yeah. in 2015. I didn't know how good I had it. <laughs> so do you do you see this this platform? taking hold. I mean, the pandemic has totally changed people's perspectives on the idea of the government giving people money to make sure that they're not destitute, right? I, I think that uh, the numbers on support for UBI has is now over 50% of, mm -hmm. of Americans support the idea of a universal basic income. Um, I think that it, the, the pandemic has has really kind of flipped the scripts on, on this for people and, and made them recognize that the government can have a role in kind of smoothing out the economic machine when the economic machine isn't able to function correctly. Yeah, you know, that's a that's the thing, right? Uh, a lot of people on the left like to talk about how SNAP and things like that are, quote unquote, automatic stabilizers. They work as a mm -hmm. counterbalance against uh, economic recessions because as more people lose their jobs, social spending increases, more money gets into the hands of people and it it helps lift us out of these economic recessions. I like to try and point out like, hey, listen, you don't you don't need a stabilizer that only kicks in if and have that stabilizer there perpetually. It's rocket yes. fuel for the economy. Like, and you totally neglect to realize at that point that these social these safety systems do not work for a majority of people, right? I, I just right. interviewed David Kim and I'm gonna get his interview out soon. And it was like how many of the people on uh is he running for Congress? Remind me, David Kim. He's running for House Seat 34 in California, which happens right. to be in the area of Los Angeles that includes uh, Skid Row. And I was like, how many people on Skid Row got their $1,000 that they were entitled to? They're unbanked. They don't have good access. They distrust institutions, all of these things. Uh, it, you know. Do you mean the $1,200 stimulus check from – right, okay, from earlier in the year? And then we find out, you know, there's now litigation and lawsuits happening in Florida where it's really come to pass that the administration before DeSantis, but perpetuated by DeSantis, existed to deny people unemployment benefits, right? right. This is another right. thing mm -hmm. that I think conservatives need to understand is you're paying into an unemployment system that should be there for you should anything go wrong. You're paying like into it. Mm -hmm. And then you're not going to get it afterwards because you're supporting a, an administration that is actively working to uh, working against it. That's wrong. Like that is super, super, yeah. super wrong. Right. And that was in Florida specifically. So, right. you know, it's it's coming to, to, to bear that there are a lot of really significant issues that exist with our welfare net, uh, uh, safety net. And, and a lot of the states, yeah, they get the federal funding. But the states, if you live in a more red state, sorry, my cat wants to join. Um, if you live in a more <laughs> red state, chances are you're more likely to be denied uh, assistance. This comes to the question of deservedness. These systems exist to determine whether or not you deserve something. And that that is a very big problem. And it's something that I, I wish that conservatives would also understand and liberals too, is when you give someone the authority to decide who should or should not, who does or does not deserve something, you are giving them a tremendous amount of power. Uh, Scott Santens recommends the book Tyranny of Kindness, where they talk about like, you could just have a spiteful bureaucrat working the office that day and you you nice. spend hours in an administration office trying to fill out paperwork and they just think that you are the scum of the earth and they're going to find any reason any little mishap on your 
paperwork application to deny you. Or the way you look, you know, the, the systemic racism. People, people don't recognize that these are the very subtle ways that racism perpetuates our systems. And, and the more we can remove the ability for individuals to have a say over your deservedness in, in being a part of our society and, and being, a, you know, a, a, an uplifted member of society, the more it just is a blanket thing that everybody gets regardless of who you are or what your circumstances are, the, the more we can remove the opportunity for racism and these other other, uh, ways of discrimination to enter into the system. Yeah, they've done studies, especially more so in like uh, southern states, red states. If you are black, you are much less likely uh, to get access to just like cash type welfare programs. You're much more likely to yep. have to be involved in like abstinence education classes or uh, pro marriage courses and Christian overnight. Like that's where taxpayer or, or drug testing or stupid bullshit. Yeah, this paternalistic. Uh, again, we don't trust people, and then like we're happier to spend more money on these bloated, inefficient, dehumanizing systems just just to to make people feel like they're less than human, right? What what is the consequence? What does that do to a human being when they're being fed into these types of systems? And I like unfortunately, uh when you try and criticize these aspects of the welfare safety net, you get cast as like some sort of Trojan horse for the more Milton Milton Freeman type arguments of like, why should we get away with the welfare state? That's not that's not what I try to do when I'm criticizing. I, I do think there are plenty of things that a universal basic income would completely uh, eclipse, but we still do need more in, in aspects of like, you know, uh, I have a hard of hearing family member and she never would have been able to enjoy a movie at the movie theater if it wasn't for the incredible work of the American Disability Association. Like there, there are special needs cases in our country that a universal basic income alone just will not help. Right. But that being said, I do think there is a massive amount of bloat and a massive amount of waste that I would be more than happy to see done with. And that's coming from me as someone who, uh, you know, the day that I left and decided to to try my 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 podcast here and and do what Scott Santons was doing, which is like, I'm gonna be a poster child for UBI. If you'll donate to me, I'll live and show you what it's like. Well, you know, the day that I seriously fantasized about driving headfirst into a Mack truck is like, okay, this is it. Like, <laughs> I'm done. Yeah the, yeah, the the workforce had ground me down that far, and there's and and like by any metric, the the safety net is going to view me as someone who does not deserve help, and I don't. I mean. Plenty of other people need more than I do. I, I am equipped and blessed with with structures around me that I can continue on even in a pandemic like this. But but uh, I can only do it for so long, and I don't want to depend on the good nature and donations of supporters, even if they believe, oh, it's unconditional. That's the thing. It's universal. It's unconditional. You're stripping away the power to to define what deservedness is and you are just right. trusting people to be human and that is powerful and i think um people on the left and the right need to think about that a little bit more i love that i love that so i wanted to ask what do you think uh how do you think this compares to other welfare programs that are already in place and like how would that actually affect those welfare programs like do you think it would replace those welfare programs or do you think it would uh supplement them in some way so I've spent a lot of time on this issue because, uh, ironically, it was not like hard conversations with the right that I mostly had as I started my channel, but it was mostly hard conversations with people from the left that 
primarily viewed a universal basic income through the framing of Milton Friedman, as this is meant to make people's lives worse, to make them more dependent on capitalism. So I actually had to like spend a little bit of time looking into, well, what is going to happen with a UBI if you currently do if you currently are lucky enough uh, to be on these programs. And, and from most of what I found, it's exceedingly rare to, to get more than $1,000 worth of cash assistance through right. uh, many of our different programs. Now, it's hard to determine exactly what percentage of welfare recipients do because oftentimes they receive welfare in many different layers. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they have many different programs that are stacking. And like right off the bat, housing vouchers are like, that's non-negotiable, right? Um, right. The amount of, of uh, money, even though it's not cash, you can't get away with, from that. And I never, I never understood that to be a part of uh, Yang's campaign, but people still painted him in the same way. So like, in those cases, there are, there are certain things where you, you cannot negotiate on, this has to be a part of it. But in terms of something like SNAP, it, there, there's a problem with keeping some uh, alongside with a universal basic income insofar as uh, be, the system itself is designed for these systems to fall away after you reach a certain income level. So mm-hmm. it's not so much as, oh, you're getting away with, you're, you're like dissolving these systems. It's that that income is going to fall away just by nature of the fact that you're now earning a certain amount of income per week. So the most important thing with that in mind is to make sure that no one is going to be financially worse off than they are uh, right now. And from all of the math that I could do from everything, uh, the the benefit, especially for people who live in households with more than one people, uh, persons, is so much more than what welfare can traditionally give. For instance, like Social Security insurance, you can only uh, get 700 and something dollars, like 776 roundabout dollars for a single income recipient. And for uh, dual income, it's about like 1100 close to 1200 So like right off the bat, you've got 24000 a month off of two people alone. It's so much better that it's like, the argument is- 2000 a month, 24000 a, a year. Thank you. Thank right. you. Um, so it's less for me as should we be concerned about some of these cash like programs going away and more of like we should be concerned with that being the obstacle for uh, a universal basic income not happening in the first place. Uh, but I, I am not in like his opt in system, I think is very important. Like you can opt in by he you mean Andrew Yang. You're referring to Andrew Yang's specific proposals. Right. So it was like cash-like specifically, you would opt into the universal basic income. And if you ever, for any reason, decided that the previous benefits you were getting, you could opt back, like no questions asked. But the utility in the the entire way that Yang's funding mechanism worked was that he ran the numbers and said, well, it's going to work because we have $600 billion in welfare costs as part of our administration right now, if it's opt-in, that 600 billion isn't a part of the equation for the total cost. It's a total, uh, cause there's gonna be a gross saving 
involved mm -hmm. if people choose to go over to the 1000 because even if you're making if you're getting let's say $970 in welfare benefits the actual cost of that welfare is much higher when you take into account the administration costs of funding those right. services and everything so no matter what any person who chooses the thousand even if they're getting more uh, than the welfare they were receiving is most likely all all the time going to incur savings overall and it would be easier to present in a bipartisan way to the nation as a whole without giving that like three trillion dollar price tag i'm sorry that was a super long and involved uh, answer <laughs> to the question you asked but but yeah i'd prefer like long drawn out answers than like short answers that are kind of ambiguous so that's perfect and the um, the other point on that as well is you know I, I would see if it were opt-in in that you might get to a point in which the universal basic income would eclipse like snap and it would be like well we just don't have a need for these services because cash is just better and no one's been worse off it's very important that we we tack the universal basic income to a metric like consumer price index uh, inflation and, and make sure that over time, and we should be doing that just on the inflation account, but also too on the notion that yes, things are getting cheaper over time and uh, more of the data that's being collected from us, we, we should find some way of increasing the basic income. Uh, it's it There are some out there I don't I have yet to speak to a single UBI advocate who thinks that $1,000 is like the, what we're going to do and then we're going to stop from there or that we wouldn't act very proactively to try and deal with any edge case scenarios that we, we did not account for. Um, right. I mean, if you ask me, I think it should be tied to GDP. The more money the country makes, the higher the dividend should be to its citizens. It, it, it sounds like a, a pretty a pretty simple way to make sure that it's growing in good times. And and if GDP is down and there is less tax revenue, then then the, the, the dividend goes down and that that it, it makes everybody feel like they're shareholders in the country in a, when the GDP goes up and everybody feels like they're contributing to it. Everybody does better and, and it lifts everyone with it because we, we need this mechanism because what's happening now is since the 70s, we've seen the, this this graph where where uh, the 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 earnings from labor. Uh, is basically flatlining, but the earnings from capital is like skyrocketing. So capital is uh, up up until the '70s, they kind of went uh, hand in hand, right? As as um, you know, as as GDP went up, labor made more, capital made more, and they kind of followed the same curve. But in the, after the '70s, they split quite drastically, and somehow uh, the capitalist class has managed to figure out how to siphon off from the labor class to the point where labor is just barely getting by, but capital is, is, is absolutely thriving. So we need to find a way to, 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 to balance that and, and smooth out, out that disparity so that, because nobody, I mean, you talk to, you talk to Jeff Bezos, you talk to Bill Gates, you talk to any wealthy person, they don't want to live in a society where they have to be flying around in helicopters and living in these gated communities while they're surrounded by poverty and people starving in the streets. Nobody wants that. We want to have a certain level of, of income floor just because it's better for everybody to be surrounded by that. So if the country is doing better, that income floor should raise. If the country, if, if the GDP comes down, the income floor could go down a little bit with it. That way, everybody feels like they're invested in the health of the country. If that makes sense. That would be my my proposal. What's really hard too is like from my own perspective is we're, we're fast approaching an, a, a truly like relatively abundant society and it's not going to be too far from now that money stops making sense as a construct for society. And I actually think that's closer than we realize because money only works as long as things are scarce. 
And, and yep. there are going to be some issues where it's like, you know, you have a 3D printer in your home and just like how music stopped being vinyl records and CDs, uh, you now digitally just download a piece of music for 99 cents. You'll digitally download a blueprint for a uh, specific fashion dress that's going to mm -hmm. pop out of your 3D printer in about two hours or so. Really, when you when you think about that future, which is well on its way, the entire concept of money as, in general falls apart when even a basic income of $1,000 goes so far to take care of any consumerist need. The real issues are the housing, the healthcare, and the um, housing, healthcare, and education, which is a little tricky. You know, the non-negotiable housing vouchers. We, we have to deal with housing in a fundamental way, and we have to deal with healthcare in a fundamental way. A UBI. Well, you know what's so interesting? Is, is those are the three things that have skyrocketed the most in terms of cost. Uh, the, the inflation of those three uh, parts of the economy are, are, are what is driving so much of this inequality and people feeling like they don't have enough to get by is because they can't afford housing, they can't afford education, and they can't afford health care. And, and those, are, those are three things that we need to somehow step in and fix the market because the market is not working correctly in, in, in those issues. Yeah, housing is the most difficult one. When it comes to health care, we already know the answer. We need uh, universal health care. Just yep. full stop. And we cannot have a universal basic income in existing alongside a system that is draining people of their income every month they get it yeah, because they're so far in yeah. medical debt. Uh, now, mm -hmm. education is, for me, like, again, I dropped out of college and I didn't take a whole bunch of loans to go into college because, it, like, I was trying to run the numbers and the math and it wasn't working out. I'm like, do I want to be saddled with debt for the rest of my life? And all yeah. of the education that I've done since I left high school has been kind of on my own time. And yeah. education, as we think of the access to knowledge and resources, I mean, you need teachers, you need a way to... Uh, make sure that the education is qualitative, but like we have the technology at our hands to educate people. Do we have the incentive structure and do we have the accreditation, right? That's essentially what education is, is get that piece right. of paper that's going to give you the job later on. And Google just came out, Google just came out with a new program. Uh, it's something like a six week or eight week course, some, some super fast course that they're they are saying that they are now treating as the same as a college education and so anybody who applies to google and has gone through this google program will basically be treated as if they've gone to any university and they're trying to expand this to be all kinds of different uh, uh, uh parts of the economy not just things that are relevant for google so they're trying to basically flip the script on its head and say how can we uh you know completely reform the education system so that people aren't being forced into these four-year institutions at $120,000 or whatever it is, $160,000 of debt and, that people are walking away with. Right. And then they're forced to get jobs that uh, are either dehumanizing or are demoralizing. And you're stuck like being forced into a very specific type of job that you have to seek in order to pay off your debts. And then by the time you get your debts paid off, you're like, far too far along in life that you can really possibly think about right. like getting housing and you're still renting, which is draining all of your money on top of that. And then if you want to have kids or you have kids maybe accidentally, then that's draining even more. So you have no chance of actually having savings, which is kind of the millennial uh, problem. But it sounds to me though, it <laughs> sounds to me though, that the education 
thing can be fixed from a kind of a market perspective in the sense yeah. that we need to reframe how we think about it and we need to create new opportunities, right? It's not necessarily a governmental approach. Um, yeah, we could give everybody free uh, state college, which would be great. I'm not against that proposal. But at the end of the day, it's it's a reframing of how we're doing education, yes. which I think that, that conversation just needs to happen. Now, when it comes to housing, though, that's a really interesting one because housing tends to be these fixed entities, right? There are only so many of them and they ha tend to exist in the areas that aren't necessarily the most useful place for them to exist, right? You say that we have enough uh, empty housing to fix the homelessness problem, but they're not in places where the homeless people can move into them in a societally acceptable, acceptable way. Um, you know, we have this problem right here in, in New York right now where during the pandemic, they opened up all these empty hotels for the homeless population and you ended up with the, the, the local residents complaining about it so much because now they have all these homeless people in these fancy neighborhoods where they where they're you know hanging out in the streets and whatever and they didn't like it so they started shutting these things down so we need to find a way to make the the housing market more liquid so to speak to create more movement within it and yang actually spoke really well to this to this point he said that when people have a universal basic income they're not as tied to a specific economic zone they can move out to another area and pool their incomes together with a whole bunch of people and they can get four people into a house in a totally different area and contribute to the economy in that place hey oh kitty <laughs> contribute to the economy in that place in ways that they don't have the opportunity to do now because they don't have the liquid assets to be able to move. And so giving people the opportunity to have a, a consistent income coming in where they can then choose where they want to put their, their feet down means that all of a sudden we have more liquidity in the housing market because people have the ability to move around. I think that's a really interesting perspective on it. And we're starting to see it in practice. Like ideally that would be the way that it works. But from my initial, just, you know, the brief reporting that I've heard from NPR and stuff like that is, you know, we're starting to see a, a exodus from, uh, you know, high density cities of people who realize, Hey, I can work from home. That means I can be anywhere in the country and they're going mm -hmm. outwards and they're finding different areas. And you're not really seeing the housing costs where they came from getting any lower. You're just seeing the housing right. costs rising where they're going. Going to, yeah. Really? What? How, how does that work? I don't understand that. We see that here in New York. There can be empty places on the market for six months at a time and they don't lower the price. Right. It's kind of like what happened in Silicon Valley where like before the like tech gurus all moved in, the housing was relatively cheap and affordable and then all these people who were making buku fucking bucks moved in and now it's one of the most unaffordable places to live but that's also a and demand problem you have all these people who want to live in a place where there isn't enough housing but what happens right right now in new york when people are leaving the city in droves but it's not driving the rent costs down they're just letting these apartments sit open because the landlords don't want to lower the, the price on the rent because it's so hard to recover that down the road Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the issue, too, is that it's uh, we make the mistake of, of localizing the markets and it is a global market. And uh, even though people around the area are there, you might be able to hold on to it and sell it for a bigger buck to a uh, person overseas who's escaping China or something. Right. right. There's still the demand because it's a global market and it Got doesn't you. quite mm -hmm. make any financial sense for uh, for you to sell for less than what you bought, like housing as a whole is turning out to be a trickier issue than I had a, I, I like at first 
thought about. That's why I know that, you know, housing voucher is non-negotiable. I think really one of the aspects of UBI that I try to uh, also think about a lot is the ability to say no, right? Like I've had the ability to say no to uh, a lifetime worth of student debt. Was that a good thing? Was that not a good thing? I don't know. I'm a YouTuber uh, and I don't have a very secure source of funding. It's very well that I have made some terrible decisions in life, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not paying thousands of dollars in student debt right now. I feel like that right. puts me a, a, a leg or two up on my peers. Sorry. I don't mean to be crawling out of this capitalist pit that we find ourselves in, but right. that is where we <laughs> exist right now. You know, like there, there will be some degree of people who can make a thousand dollars go a lot further in another place. But ultimately we are going to be dealing with the, the thing that like the poor are just going to be stratified from the rich. If we don't, if we don't address this somehow, some way, the zoning regulations right. is great. Building more affordable housing, uh, building, housing that like people can live in and it's designed for them like we need it like i said money is about to stop making sense and land ownership is also going to stop making sense in the future as well how do we evolve as a human species uh we're going to turn our eyes up towards the stars at some point where we're going to leave this earth where we're going to all get together and start building the the crazy innovations that allow us to become more than just a planetary species uh, it's, it's, how are we going to get there where we all are unified and say, Hey, yeah, we understand this, right? We're, we're, we're unified. We got it. There's gonna be some shaky growing pains, uh, to get to that point. How do we best go about doing it? A universal basic income is not a silver bullet solution for all of these things. Mm. However, uh, that's, that's, with that being acknowledged, I do think it's very disingenuous that some people will say, well, all of that income is just going to be immediately sucked up, uh, get sucked up by the capitalist class. I think that's very, uh, that's, that's just incorrect uh, on face value, but it does have some things we need to consider. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. So we are we are nearing two hours. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing back to the technology uh, aspect of it. A, a lot. Elon Musk, such a polarized uh, person, you know, they're shooting up uh, satellites every single day, like 60 satellites per round. They're going to have 12,000 of these orbiting the Earth, uh, low Earth orbit that provide accessible Wi-Fi. Uh, internet. You could be on the top of Mount Everest and be able to update your Instagram story, right? Uh, the ways in which we will be able to move out as communities will be expansive, uh, very much so in nature. And, and we should take advantage of the ways if we can have a sustainable way of doing so, sustainable trans, uh, transportation, we don't want to exacerbate the environmental issues we're, we're dealing with. But housing and where you're located uh, as a whole is going to also broaden as as the years continue on. And I think that's. Important. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think that UBI enables, you know, people to, to have a little bit more say in, in where they decide to, to put their feet down and which economies they decide to participate in, because most people today are stuck simply taking it, uh, taking advantage of the opportunities that are right in front of them because they don't have the opportunity to say no and go to a different town over. They don't have the they don't have the money in the bank to be able to do that. And right. UBI enables that. I would love to touch on on this concept though of, of of kind of separating UBI from Andrew Yang's candidacy because Yang did an incredible job pushing this into the forefront. But at the end of the day, rather than I think a lot of people get caught up on on kind of debating the specific proposals that Yang made rather than recognizing that this is a long 
discussion that we're going to have to having over many years in terms of figuring out what the best way to do this is. And, and there's so many different answers and so many different uh, of the nuances of it. But the important thing to recognize is that this isn't just about Andrew Yang anymore. How many people do we have running for Congress now where UBI is a part of their platform? Do you know the number? It's, it's, it's not insignificant. Not insignificant, yeah. Um, in Sevier County, not too far from where I live, these wildfires just happened in, I think, 2017 or so. A lot of people in East Tennessee were displaced from this disaster. And Dolly Parton, God bless her soul, she's the reason. Oh, Dolly is a fucking American fucking treasure. She is everything. Oh. May she live forever. Yeah, she's she's so <laughs> awesome, and she stays apolitical mostly. And when she when she opens her mouth, some good stuff comes out. But I wish she could, you know, because we did a study from the University of Tennessee that said, "Hey, look look at what cash did for these communities." And so the University mm -hmm. of Tennessee came out with it and everything. And in that district, uh, Blair Walsingham's running here in the South in Tennessee, and and she's got an uphill battle, but like. That just goes to show you that these candidates are out there and uh, we, we have to do what we can to amplify their voices. David Kim in California, uh, all of these individuals who I hope to have more in, uh, interviews with, if they don't make it this time around, they're going to be there ready to go the next time around, right. too. We mm -hmm. have more than just Yang to, to work with. Right. And and yes, the pandemic has has shown like, hey, maybe it wasn't automation and robots, but a virus that kicks people out and says, hey, we actually value you staying at home right now. That's what society right. values. How? Yeah. But not just that. It's important to us that you still have money to take part in the economy, because if you're not taking part in the economy, the economy all of a sudden collapses. our beautiful GDP goes down and that's not good for anyone. So we, we need people to have a certain amount of, of income at all times. And, and that's just necessary to keep the country running. That liquidity is so important. Yeah. And that, that's another thing that I bring up is even if someone was super lazy, like even if I quit my YouTube channel, I sat around, played video games all day. The act of me taking my UBI to the local diner, getting a meal and tipping the waitress, that's actually valuable. And that's that's yep. a crazy thing to talk about. It is hard. You cannot be a parasite in our country like you literally right. can't. Um, you, you, you can cause damage and we should have systems in place for that and make sure we all get along in some way or another. Uh, but, and another thing you mentioned too is uh, like, it reminds me of that meme with the dog with the Frisbee and you go to take the Frisbee and he's like, no, he's like throw and you go and grab it. And he goes, no, no throw. Uh, no, no take, only throw, right? That's essentially the boomer's mindset when it comes to how they yeah. want an economy of people spending. It's like, why aren't you spending? It's like, no, no wage, only spend, only spend, right? right. Like it's right. such, it's this like right. schizophrenic disconnect that that our society has that just blows my mind uh, constantly. Really, it, it does feel like if we just get our act together, if we just put it through, like if, if we can just sneak it through. And that's why, I, that's what I wanted to happen with the CARES Act, you know, make this every right. single month. If, if we have been getting this check, every single month for the past couple of uh of months right like people would suddenly go oh yeah hey this is this is really good you know it's like yeah. oh i've been able to still be a whole person and stay at home and not have to worry about whether or not my boss is gonna fire me 
perfect. But the important thing too is these local businesses, you know, they're the the right. They love to talk about supporting small business and making sure that we're 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 giving money to the businesses to keep them in business so that they can keep people on payroll without recognizing it. If you just give p- money to people in the community, they're going to go and spend it at those businesses and those businesses will stay in business as a result of the people being able to purchase things. So rather than this like weird socialized version of of uh, maintaining businesses. It's like, give them money to not do anything. Let's give the people money to buy things. The people get the products that they need, the businesses get the money that they need and everything runs smoothly. And it's, it seems so obvious. When I was waiting tables, the month, the week of the month that I would make the most money was the week that dis- the disability checks went out. And like, do you right. think that I cared where those people got their money from? Yeah. No, I was just happy as can be that I was getting something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, again, we are holding ourselves back economically. And after a universal basic income, what you have is a society in which like the positive feedback loop is based on what people value. It's like, uh, we have the money, we want more of this thing, we'll spend it that way. And and like, you have the incentive reinforcement structure, nothing happens when all of this wealth just pulls up into the bank accounts of the elite, it doesn't right. trickle down, uh, yeah. it, it like it's stagnant. And we we go down six gears uh, on the highway, it's it's awful and it makes no sense. And yeah, I I do think that we are on the right path. Hold out optimism for sure. Yeah. So who who is doing the best work right now in terms of uh, curating the information on this? Where do you send people when they want to learn more about UBI? I have a lot of uh, kind of fantastical ideas about all of this. And if you've made it to the end of this episode, really kudos to you because it's been quite a ride. Uh, I, sometimes I worry that I'm not doing it the justice that it needs because I look at Scott Santon's really first right. and foremost. You go to his Twitter page. He's got like right there yeah. tabbed on the front. Here is the list of the most important pieces of data you need to be equipped with. And if you're curious for this is what's been found quantitatively uh, from empirical data, from studies. And yes, we'll never know what a real universal basic income can do until we do it. That's just the nature of a universal system. Like, I hate to break it. At the same at the same time, though, we do have some evidence, you know, in, in terms of uh, the, the the oil dividend in Alaska. There was, I believe, studies done in, in Kenya. They did a study in Finland. We have had small bits and pieces. They're now doing UBI um, studies around the country. Stockton, California is is a city that is, is doing a UBI pilot program. Uh, Andrew Yang is, of course, uh, uh, trying to get UBI programs funded all over the country. His organization now is called Move Humanity Forward, I think. Is, is that the full name of it? Um, or just Humanity Forward or something like that. But what he's doing is he's partnering with uh, very wealthy people who are interested in furthering uh, the research on UBI. So just this year, uh, the, the, the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, uh, created a billion-dollar fund of his own money, and a significant portion of that is going to funding UBI research and uh, women's issues as well, I think, were the two things that he, he wanted to focus on. So, so we're seeing stuff happening here. Yeah. One thing that I've recently spent a lot of time focusing on is the good dollar organization, which is trying to utilize cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin. This is a topic for an entire other show, but uh, there are really interesting things happening in decentralized finance, this, this, uh, this area of cryptocurrency. And essentially there's an organization that allows you as a first world, um, 
you know, income recipient, however you have your money, if you're interested at all in trying to eliminate extreme poverty, like real poverty in developing countries, you can state capital in the form of cryptocurrency to a fund that distributes out a universal basic income every single day. I actually have my own wallet. I've got like 41 good dollars and I get it every single day. It's a nice little routine. And essentially what they're doing is they're trying to bank the unbanked. Because if we think of like poverty in a globalized sense, what are the issues? Why why do these parts of the country continue to lag behind the rest of the developed world? Well, clearly we've got the history of colonial, uh, colonization and industrialization, the way that we've abused and taken advantage of these parts of the world. But also we, we've never had an incentive structure in place to actually put banks in these places that we've been mm-hmm. abusing and taking advantage of. So these people, either they don't have access to a bank or their government's so corrupt that they're dealing with hyperinflation and, and no function functioning uh, actual system at all, they will have access to good dollars that they can trade amongst each other in their villages, wherever they may be. And it's tacked to the stable currency of the United States dollar. That's what's important about it. It's not just some kind of imaginary, you know, magic money. This actually does have United States dollars behind it. So one thing that I've thought about doing is, you know, I want to try and create a good uh, fundamental understanding of this in a way that is digestible and try and go out to fill in tropic organizations and hold some type of discussion with them to say, listen, you you have a, a moral mission with uh, within you to try and help these parts of the country. The best way to do it is through universal basic income. Look towards organizations like Good Dollar. Look towards organizations like Give Directly, which, which just sends cash in the form of U.S. dollars. Um, these are things that you can do if you're a little bit more wealthy. You can also support content creators like myself. No, I'm sorry. I didn't. (laughs) But it is kind of true. There is something very important in having these discussions and broadening the entire debate. Uh, We do serve a purpose. And and without us, uh, that's why I felt so driven to support Andrew Yang in the first place. And I will say the moment that I picked up the mic and the camera and I started talking about him, I felt more fulfilled than I've ever been. I suddenly it was like I found my purpose. That's just a well, you know. We're going to have to do a whole nother episode on this because we had a whole bunch of stuff that we wanted to talk about with you about this specifically, what what your experience has been as a content creator, taking up the microphone, saying, I want to have a voice in this conversation. I want to influence people. I want to bring about change in the world. And then how you're using social media to do it, You know how you're using YouTube, uh, uh, the way that you were able to start creating those viral videos during the campaign. We were looking back through some, through, through some of the stuff you created. And you had some really, really great content that was getting a lot of great traction. And, and that's just it's an exciting thing to see people doing. And, and I've been very inspired by seeing, I want to say people like you, but now even, you know, getting to getting to research what you've done specifically. I love to see that. I want to uplift more people like that. I want to share those stories. So we're going to have to probably do a part two of, of this interview at some point to talk about that. I was, I'm really happy that we got to talk about UBI in depth though, because it's a topic that I am going to keep coming back to thousand uh, yeah. on this podcast um, and talking to people that are finding ways to, 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 Find new solutions for our economy that is is just leaving so many people behind right now. And and yeah, so we're going to be having a lot more of these really exciting conversations. Um, unfortunately, we do we're, have to go. we're running right up on, on our time limit here. Um, before we wrap things up, though, you, you were mentioning a couple of the different organizations that, that um, you are excited about that you'd like to push people towards. What, where are the places that people can find you online if they want to uh, get to know about, about you and your program? Yeah, uh, that was Give Directly, Good Dollar. Check out Scott Sanson's 
S-C-O-T-T-S-A-N-T-E-N-S. You can find me at uh, at Dividend Report is my Twitter, and I have a YouTube channel, uh, The Dividend Report. You can just search it and you'll find me. And I try to do daily kind of episodes. I'm more involved in the technological aspect, trying to get away from politics, but I'm going to I'm going to keep in this fight in the next up to 2024. I hope to see y'all with me. Thank you so much for having me on this show. I'm so glad to get to meet you and have these conversations. And thank you for doing what you can to move this movement forward. You guys are awesome. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure and definitely come visit us in New York anytime. Hey, absolutely. (laughs) I I look forward to hopefully being able to do that once we have a universal basic income. That's right. And we'll do at some point, we'll do an interview here in the studio. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks guys. Thank you so much. Awesome. Have a wonderful rest of your day.